Hey, Keystoners. Welcome back to Keystone State of Mind. It's me, Steph, your tour guide to the dark side of Pennsylvania. I hope everybody's enjoying the tail end of summer. I'm usually so sad to see summer end, but this year I'm kind of looking forward to fall and I think I'll have a little more time to dedicate to the show during the winter. So I'm excited about that too. I don't have a whole lot of announcements this week other than please go check out the website. I really worked hard on that and I know it's still pretty skimpy, but I'm getting there. I'll get some more pages up as soon as possible. And don't forget to click that little tip your tour guide button and throw me some money via PayPal if you would like to help support the show. That's at ksomthepod.com. I do want to quickly shout out Keystoner Christian, who helped me choose this week's episode. I was feeling kind of indecisive, and he gave me the help I needed there. Also, I had the masterful musician Jay Root in the house last week. So you'll hear some new sounds. I was really excited to record some new music, some new transition music to incorporate into upcoming episodes. So thanks again, Jay Root. You can find him on Facebook through his band name, The Red Eyes. Don't forget to keep the ratings and reviews coming. That is also a free way that you can support the show. If you have an iPhone, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and review five stars, preferably a good review. Unless you absolutely hate it and you really got to tell me about it, I'll accept that as well. If you hear a little extra background noise in this episode, that's because I absolutely had to do laundry and I could not wait any longer to either record or wash clothes. So you might hear my washer in the background. I'll try to keep that to a minimum. I do have a content warning for today's episode. We are gonna be talking about some really disturbing acts of domestic violence. If this is something that you don't feel is appropriate for you to listen to, I definitely recommend skipping this episode because there is going to be some discussion of some pretty horrific acts. And with that, I would also like to send out the National Domestic Abuse Hotline phone number, and that is 1-800-799-7233. You can also find help at their website, and that is thehotline.org. Okay, that stuff's out of the way. Let's get into today's story. But first, let's get into a Keystone State of Mind. As always, I'll be enjoying an ice-cold can of Keystone Light while I chat with you today. But let me just tell you this, you guys, there has been a Keystone Light shortage in my little neighborhood. I have three different stores that I go between on my way home from work, and none of them have had Keystone Light in like three weeks. Not even the local beer distributor. I've been having to go to New York State to get my key lights. 
Granted, it's only like 10 miles away, but still, it's not on my way home from work. But you know, I'm staying on brand, so we do what we got to do. Late in the evening of November 29th, 1992, 55-year-old Grady Stiles Jr. was found dead, shot numerous times in his home in Gibsonton, Florida. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait a minute. Why are we talking about Florida? Well, this is one of two murders that occurs in this story. And the first of these murders took place in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And these two murders may not even be the most interesting part of this story. Grady Stiles Jr. lived an unusual life, to say the least. And let's just start at the beginning. Grady Stiles Jr. was born July 18, 1937, to parents Edna and Grady Stiles Sr., obviously. His family lived on the north side of Pittsburgh, which at the time was a really rough and pretty poor neighborhood. At the time of his birth, it was obvious that Grady was going to face some unique challenges growing up. He was born with a congenital condition known as ectrodactyly. This is sometimes informally referred to as lobster claw syndrome. Ectrodactyly affects people afflicted with this condition differently, but in Grady's case, he his arms were normal. His hands, however, though, were fused in a claw-like fashion. So I don't think he had thumbs. Uh, his index and middle fingers were fused together, and his ring and pinky fingers were fused together on both hands. But they're also kind of slightly larger. If you look at a picture of his hands, they're slightly larger than average fingers, I would say. His legs were also affected. The growth of his legs stopped just below the knee. And rather than feet, he had the same type of lobster claw-like appendages just below his knees. Now, this was not a surprise to Grady's parents, though. Grady Sr. also had this condition. His legs were intact and average, but Grady Sr., his hands were lobster claws-like in the same way. This condition had actually run in the Stiles family since 1840, and Grady was the sixth generation to be afflicted with this. Grady Sr. wasn't upset for his son because this condition is what made Grady Sr. his living. He worked as a sideshow performer in carnivals and circuses. He was the lobster man. So this was an addition to his sideshow. He could now bill himself and his son as the lobster family. So this wasn't altogether a bad thing in the eyes of 
Edna and Grady Stiles Sr. Grady Jr. had two sisters. One of his sisters was born with ectrodactyly and one was not. So the three of them could travel as sideshow performers and help the family make a living. As a baby and a toddler, Grady Jr. learned how to move around using his arms, mainly. He went to school and played in the neighborhood just like any average child. But this was the 40s, and people were not quite as PC as we are today. He was ridiculed by kids and adults. Parents were afraid to let their children play with him. People treated Grady like a freak from the first times that he could remember. And he hated living on the north side of Pittsburgh. His father was away with the carnival most of the time when he was really young. He didn't even have anyone to look up to or to help explain to him how to deal with this negative attention. Thankfully for young Grady, when he was seven years old, the family decided to move to Gibsonton, Florida. And this was a great move for Grady Jr. because Gibsonton isn't just some regular old neighborhood. This is where carnival folk and sideshow performers would spend the winter when they weren't on the road. So the people in this town, they all had unique physical aspects. There was the bearded lady, and there was the giant man, and there was the smallest woman in the world. And these people actually brought their circus animals with them to live in this town during the off season. So there were animals with deformities, like a two-headed sheep and a cow with three legs and things like that. I'm not 100% actually exactly what kind of animals were there, but it was weird animals, whatever. So here, Grady fit in. He was much happier in Gibsonton, especially when he was old enough to go on the road with his dad and be part of this sideshow culture. He was basically the star of the show, and he had a lot of clout growing up in the carnival. Now you're going to want to feel bad for Grady and you're going to want to be happy for him that he made better for himself. But that sympathy won't last long, trust me, because Grady is the dickbag in this story. You're going to find out that he was such an asshole. You're going to be glad when he gets murdered. At least I was. I know that sounds harsh, but just trust me. He's a rotten fucking dude. Now we have to meet the next main character of the story. And that is Mary Teresa. She would eventually become Mary Teresa Stiles. And apparently I forgot to write down her maiden name. So I don't know it, but it's not important. 
I just did a quick Google search and I couldn't find it super quickly, so whatever. She went by the name Teresa, and that's what we're going to call her. Teresa grew up in Vermont. She lived with her mother and stepfather. Later in her life, she would testify that she had a sexual relationship with her stepfather for years, starting from when she was about eight years old. I will not call that a sexual relationship. I will call that rape and sexual assault of a child. So we can rest assured that Teresa's life growing up in her mother and stepfather's home was not pleasant. And Teresa was not happy there. Twice a year, the carnival would come through town and she loved it. She could not wait to go see the lights and these larger than life people with these fabulous lives, at least from her point of view. And here I'm going to take a second because I know nowadays we think of like carnivals as grubby and carnies or, you know, toothless weirdos. But I think at this time, like in the 50s and 60s, it was exciting. For a small town girl, this probably seemed like Hollywood, like the big time, you know? And Teresa wanted so bad to just take off with the carnival every time they packed up and left her little town. So when she turned 18, that's exactly what she did. And she was so happy there at first. She thought it was so exciting and they got to travel. And she started out as a ticket selling lady or whatever. She sold tickets. But she quickly got promoted to be the blade box girl. And that was a big promotion for her. So, of course, the blade box girl, she's the girl that lays in the box and the magician type people stuff swords in the box and then she comes out unharmed. So now she's a performer, even though she's an assistant, she's still a performer. And that's a huge step up in the 1960s carnival land, I guess. She also took on her own little performance, which was the electrified girl, which she would sit in a chair that resembled like an electric chair and somebody would flip the switch and this glow would come about her and she'd act like she's getting electrocuted. And then when they sh shut the switch back off, she would be fine. You know, just another illusion thing. But this was kind of hers all on her own. She didn't even have to be an assistant for that one. Early on in her carnival career, Teresa hooked up with this handsome, rugged roustabout, and they quickly got married. A roustabout, I had to look that up, It's basically a laborer in the carnival field. That would be the people that put up the tents and shit or whatever. But I also think that that term can apply to any profession. I guess a roustabout just means like a general laborer. So she gets with this guy. His name's Jerry. He uh, joined the carnival at 18 as well. And he was cool at first till they got married. And then she got pregnant. And then he became a complete dick. And 
abused her terribly. He broke out her front teeth. He knocked her downstairs. He held her at knife point. Horrible things like that. Now, Teresa, we're going to find in this story, is she's just accustomed to abuse and never really seems to come to terms with the fact that she does not deserve to be treated this way. I think she just, and this is just my speculation, but I think she just assumed this is what women go through. That's how women are treated and that's the way it is. So she did not leave Jerry. But Jerry, however, did leave her. And he left her with a baby, a little girl named Deborah. And Teresa was sad when he left her. She was kind of broken. But she picked herself back up and he did leave her without divorcing her. So she actually went out on her own and got an attorney and got a divorce in full custody of her daughter, Deborah. This entire time, she's still traveling with the circus and Grady Stiles Jr. starts having a little crush on her. She worked her way up from ticket girl to being blade box girl and then electrified girl. And now she's running her own little sideshow gig and she was cute and pretty and young and attractive. And Grady set his sights on her. And like I said earlier, Grady was kind of the bigwig there. His show was the most sought after by the carnival goers. And he had a chip on his shoulder, even at a young age. He was charismatic and he was charming, but he was also had a commanding presence. People listened to him and people took note when he spoke. So when Grady... Now, this is Grady Jr. we're talking about. I'm not going to refer to Grady Sr. anymore, so we can just forget Grady Sr. This is all Grady Jr. now. So when Grady Jr. took an, an interest in Teresa, she was flattered. And he was charming and sweet and showered her with attention, and she loved it. He was nice to baby Deborah, and they hit it off right away. Teresa and Grady got married in 1959 and quickly got to having babies. Their first two children sadly died in infancy. They were on the road all the time in these cold, drafty trailers. Probably not the best environment for infants. So according to Teresa, these two babies died of pneumonia. And... I, it's unclear whether or not these children were affected with ectrodactyly. That was not something I could find. I just want to take a sec here and mention my main source for this episode. It was a book called Lobster Boy by Fred Rosen. And if that author's name sounds familiar, then you're a hell of a keystoner because he was the same guy who wrote the book blood crimes that I referenced in the Allentown skinhead murders episode. So Fred Rosen, props bro. Thanks for the awesome resources. Oh, and I don't think I've mentioned yet that when Grady Jr. was like out on his own doing his own sideshow at the carnival, he went by the name Lobster Boy. So 
That's not really Fred Rosen just being insensitive about his condition. He was self-proclaimed lobster boy. And while I'm off topic, I'm going to just mention that I totally just found Mary Teresa's maiden name. It's Herzog. I did write it down. Whatever. Still not important. Okay. So anyways, back to Grady and Teresa's early years of marriage. After losing their first two children, they kept going. And in 1963, Teresa gave birth to a healthy baby girl named Donna Marie. She was not afflicted with ectrodactyly. And Teresa was overjoyed. But Grady was bitter. He was actually jealous of baby Donna for being born without this condition. And Donna would say later in her life that she took the brunt of his abuse, possibly because she was average. Even Deborah, Teresa's child from her first marriage, was not treated as badly as Donna in the household. In 1969, Grady and Teresa had another child, another girl named Catherine, and she went by Kathy. She did have ectrodactyly and pretty much the exact same deformity as her father had. So the arms intact, but the hands affected, the legs below the knee affected by this condition. So now there's Grady and Teresa and the three girls in the home. And the three girls are about six years apart. By the time Catherine was born, Grady was terribly abusive and a full-fledged alcoholic. Any part of him that had been nice, that had been charming, that had been charismatic before was gone. And now he was just a monster. Here's where we're going to start getting into the really horrific domestic violence issues. Most of this comes from Donna's recollections and her interviews with Fred Rosen for his book. So Donna was six when Kathy was born, so she should have been in school. But most of the time they were out on the road. They stayed in hotels and they stayed in the carnival trailers when they were home for the off season it was between Gibsonton Florida and Pittsburgh sometimes they lived in Pittsburgh sometimes they lived in Gibsonton I think it probably just depended on Grady's mood I guess and for the rest of his life Grady would kind of hop between Gibsonton Florida and Pittsburgh when they were living in a home, not on the road in the trailer, the girls would go to school and they would have to go directly to their rooms when they got home. Their mother, Teresa, she was trying to protect them from Grady's rage. He drank nearly a gallon of Seagram 7 every day. 
and he would mix it with soda and he called it his tea. He would drink it from the moment he got up in the morning until the moment he passed out. Sometimes he would pass out on the floor in a puddle of his own vomit where he would continue sleeping until the next afternoon so the girls would have to step over him to go to school. The more he drank, the more abusive he was. And Donna actually said she never saw him without a drink in his hand. If he didn't have a drink in his hand, he was sleeping. He drank just as much when he was performing. There were times when he would fall off his stage. And, you know, we've said he can't stand anyway. He would walk on his hands and use his arms to move around In public, a lot, he would use a wheelchair, but for his show, he would, he's he's relying on his arms and hands, his claws to move. And I say claws, I'm not trying to be offensive. That's what he called them. That's what they all called them, his claws. Because he spent so much time walking on his arms and with his claws, they were so strong. Anyone who had been hit in the face by Grady, and that was quite a few people, they said it felt like being hit with a board. That's how strong his arms and his claws were. He would also pinch. Not cute and funny in a cute little pinchy way. No, no, no. In a painful, horrible, sadistic way. This was the way he would reprimand his daughters by pinching them with his vice-like claws. He also would headbutt. That was one of his favorite things to do. Once he would get Teresa down to the ground with punches from his board-like claws, he would then headbutt her in the stomach. Now, he would never put marks on Teresa's face. She, of course, had to perform, and he couldn't have her out on the midway all bruised up. So he kept his abuse to her body. Even in the summer, Teresa would always wear long pants and long sleeves because she was covered in bruises from Grady's pinches, from his punches from his headbutts. One specific incident that Donna remembers very well. They were asleep in their rooms. And by this time, Kathy, the youngest daughter, she was also in school. So that would have put Donna at like 11 or 12. That would have put Deborah, the oldest daughter, at like 17, 18. They were all asleep in their rooms and they heard screaming and a huge commotion and then a terrible crash. And they go out to find Teresa unresponsive on the floor and Grady just pummeling her in the ribs and in the stomach and in the chest. He picked her up as she was knocked out cold and limp and he headbutted her again, in front of the children. The girls were screaming, begging him to stop, 
trying to pull her away from him. When his rage, his fury finally subsided, he told Teresa, I should just finish you right here. The children dragged her outside to get fresh air, and it took Teresa nearly five minutes to come out of this stupor that Grady had put her into. Donna asked, Mom, can I please call the police? And Teresa said, no, it's over now. He's just drunk. He'll pass out. This was something that Donna remembers living through often. This was not an isolated incident. Now you guys can understand why I was kind of jazzed when this schmuck got murdered. So shortly after this incident in 1974, the family was staying in a hotel. They were out on the road. Grady had a really bad show. He was drunk and fell off the stage and furious at his wife and kids for this. He told Teresa, get these fucking kids out of my face. He threw $20 at her and told her to get the fuck out. She did. She packed her kids up and she called the only other person that she really could count on. This guy's name was Harry Glenn Newman, and he went by Glenn, so that's what we're going to call him. Glenn was part of the show. He worked for Grady in the Sideshow Act. He was a little person that went by the stage name of Midget Man. Now, I do know that midget is an offensive term, but I'm saying that because that's what he called himself. So, yes, Teresa called Glenn, a.k.a. Midget Man, because she had no one else to turn to. Glenn had really taken a shine to Teresa while they were traveling with the carnival. He would never have come on to her. He wasn't that kind of a guy. Glenn was a good dude. But he felt for Teresa. He knew what she went through at the hands of Grady. And Grady wasn't really nice to anybody. Like, it's not like he went home and beat on his family and treated everybody else like gold. No. Grady treated everybody like garbage. That was just his M.O. So when Teresa called Glenn... Midget Man was more than happy to quit the show. He was over Grady's bullshit anyways, really. So he says, yeah, cool. I'll be right over. We're going to go back to my mom's place in Ohio. We'll figure this out. So Teresa moved with Glenn to Ohio and lived with his parents. And they got chummy and had a really nice relationship. Donna remembers this as being some of the best times in her childhood. Now, by this time, Deborah, the oldest daughter, she was old enough to be out on her own. So she kind of went and did her own thing. And I'm not sure what that is. Did not come up in Fred Rosen's book. 
Donna and Kathy were having finally a nice, stable, comfortable life in Ohio with Teresa and Glenn. Well, Teresa neglected to kind of do any of this legally. So Grady, in the meantime, got a divorce, got an attorney, got a divorce, and no one ever got that memo to Teresa, so she didn't show up to the hearing, which was, I'm assuming, in Pittsburgh. I think that's probably where they lived at that time. And she's living in Ohio, so she would really have no way of knowing what's going on. Grady was granted an uncontested divorce and full custody of Donna and Kathy. So this couple months period where these two young girls are finally having a stable, comfortable life without a psycho parent quickly came to an end. The girls were forced to go with Grady and live in Pittsburgh on the north side in this shabby part of town. And by this time, Grady was quite ill. He wasn't traveling as much. He had cirrhosis of the liver and emphysema from his gallon of Seagram's and three packs of Pall Malls a day. So he was barely able to take care of himself. Yet a court awarded him full custody of these two girls. Donna remembers not only being heartbroken by this, but also terrified. In the meantime, Grady had married another woman. Her name was Barbara, and Barbara was now pregnant with Grady's son. Barbara also had a child of her own coming into the marriage. Barbara was quite different from Teresa. Teresa hated Grady's drinking, but Barbara was right in with it. She also had a drinking problem. And Donna ended up being the babysitter for when Grady and Barbara would go out partying. During this time, Donna and Kathy were not dealing with such terrible physical abuse, but there was a lot of emotional abuse in the household. And although Grady was not beating on his children, he certainly was beating on his new wife. And he was not limiting those beatings to her body. Barbara was known to have black eyes and bloody lips at any given time. Barbara, I don't know her background at all. I don't know what kind of life she had lived up until this point. But she also seemed to just accept Grady's abuse. Barbara did give birth to Grady's son, Grady Styles III. Yep, there's another Grady in the story. And he was also afflicted with ectrodactyly. Baby Grady had pretty much the same malformations that his father and his sister Kathy had. 
And right around the same time, Teresa also got married to Glenn and gave birth to his child, which was Harry Glenn Newman Jr. Now let's remember, Glenn is a little person. The baby, though, not a little person. Average sized person. I know we got a lot going on here, so let's just recap. Grady and Teresa split up, get a divorce. Teresa moves to Ohio with Glenn, gets married to him, has a baby, not a little person. Grady gets married to Barbara. He takes the two girls, Donna and Kathy, and they are living in Pittsburgh. Deborah, the oldest daughter, she's out doing her own thing. I have no idea what that is. Grady and Barbara have a baby. Grady Styles the third. Okay. I think we're on the right track. I know there's a lot of names and I know there's a lot of shit going on. And I hate to do this to you guys, but I feel like this is going to have to be a two-part episode. Because I'm nearly 40 minutes in and I haven't even gotten to the first murder yet. Actually, I think that's a good place to stop for part one. I'll recap again at the beginning of part two. I did not mean for this to be such a long episode, but there's a lot of shit to talk about here. And trust me, you're going to want to tune in to part two. We have barely scratched the surface of this story. Okay, guys, I promise I won't make you wait two weeks for the ending of the story. It's worth waiting for, but I'm going to get it out in the next couple of days. I was not anticipating this to be a two-part episode, but you know, I don't write scripts or practice all that much, so it's long. I can't help it. Hang in there with me, guys. It'll be worth it. In the meantime, stay keystoned, my friends. Mm-hmm.